Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is Erica Benson, who hi, is hi everyone, <laughs> who is co-owner of Goche Capital LLC. We will discuss how to invest in vacant land in 2021. Erica is a former affordable housing director for the city of New York who has turned into full-time land investor. She used to help New Yorkers find affordable housing, and now she helps people across the country find affordable land. She keeps an active blog on the company website where she gives out advice on buying and selling land. She also has a YouTube channel with more than 250 videos with tips for land buyers and information on her company's properties. Erica, welcome. Thank you for having me. Let's start with a really basic question. It sounds really easy, but what do we mean when we say vacant land? Um, Well, that's basically any property that doesn't have any kind of improvement on it. Um, So it wouldn't have a house or any building. And usually our properties are also not finished lots, so they haven't necessarily been cleared or graded and made ready for building. But vacant land can, of course, also include properties that are development ready. They just don't have any structures on them at the moment. Could it be rural, urban, suburban? Is it any of the above? Yes, a vacant parcel can be anywhere. Um, most of our properties are rural, but you can find in, in very built-up areas vacant land parcels as well. Typically, those parcels are called infill lots um, because they will usually be surrounded by other buildings. But, um, yep, vacant land parcels are located throughout the U.S. in every kind of context. And when we say throughout the U.S., for purposes of our discussion today. Is that the contiguous United States? Does that include Alaska, Hawaii, and the Caribbean, et cetera? What are we talking about? Yeah, so uh, we actually haven't acquired any properties in Alaska or Hawaii, but um, we do look in those states, so it's the entire U.S., If you're talking about vacant land in general and not just our company, you can have vacant land in in any country as well. Um, I know that there are some people who do a lot of business in the Caribbean or in Latin America as well. I had heard that rural land purchases were very risky. And I noticed that you said that most of the land that you have for sale is rural. So what is the truth about that? Is rural land very risky as a purchase for an investment or for personal use? Well, the the answer to that question really varies. Um, it depends on what you are looking to do with the property. So there there is some truth to the fact that a vacant land parcel will likely not appreciate in the same way that a home will. So our general philosophy for a company is that we we don't purchase land as a buy and hold strategy for that reason. But in other ways, vacant land can be less risky. So the, the main reason is that it is 
far more affordable on average to buy a vacant parcel of land than it is to buy a property with an improvement on it. So if you are looking to purchase property to invest, you can follow a strategy like what we do, which is to buy and then try to immediately resell. And when you do that with vacant land, it can be less risky one because you don't have to put up anywhere near as much capital to acquire the property. And two, because of the lower price point, you can actually reach, uh, again, if you're buying lower value parcels of land, and also if you incorporate certain strategies like offering owner financing, you can have a pretty broad market and a, um, a number of potential purchasers, including a lot of people who may not be able to afford to become a property owner if they're only limited to looking at homes. So a lot of people may want to get into land ownership first um, and work their way up to home ownership. What is the range of prices? I realize that it's going to be very diverse because we're talking nationwide, but would you give us an idea of what we're talking about in terms of prices, the, the most affordable to the highest range for purposes of our discussion? Well, so for my company, we stick with lower value parcels of land, so all of our properties are generally priced below $20,000, um, and they can range from some of our most affordable properties are only $1,000 up to the $20,000 mark. But if you're talking about vacant land in general, you can you see prices all over the place. Um, there are, again, parcels that you can purchase for only $1,000, but then there are also very, very large, um, generally highly productive properties that can be millions of dollars as well. And what kind of uh, size property are some of them I think you said are urban so I'm assuming those are small lots a quarter of an acre perhaps and then the rural ones are larger would you tell us about that yeah that's right so generally an infill lot in a in a city is going to be a small parcel um, you know probably about a quarter of an acre maybe um, some are even smaller than that whereas the rural parcels are going to be usually between 5 and 10 acres. Um, we don't typically get parcels that are much larger than 10 acres because we, keep, we stick with the lower price points. But, of course, um, if you're just talking about vacant land in general, you can have rural acreages that are hundreds of acres. And you talked about some of the land being productive. So is that in the form of farms or for industrial use? Yeah, so I, I should say I'm not an expert on the really high-value properties, but certainly properties that are known to have highly productive soil um, will be uh, far more expensive, and um, those would be used. They're probably already in use to some degree. Um, for ranching or agriculture. You can also have, of course, infill lots that are very, very expensive. Um, like I think of a vacant land parcel in New York City is going to be millions of dollars as well. Do you have any idea what the universe is in terms of the number of lots or parcels 
that are available for sale, say, for example, in 2021? What are we talking about in terms of? Oh, that's a good question. I, I can't give you an exact answer, but there is a lot of vacant land out there. Um, thousands and thousands of acres are available, and a lot of it is off-market, which is why I think many people don't really think about vacant land as um, as an investment strategy or as something that is easily accessible. Now, that's, that's an interesting thought because I think that was the same thing that I thought, well, who is buying if it is risky and how do you go from risky to profitable as an investment? So if you're talking about invest, well, first I should take a step back and, and just say, if you're looking at buyers of vacant land, um, generally, and this is a very broad view, but we see two big buckets of buyers. There are those who are looking to be real estate investors and use land as their vehicle into real estate investing or as a side investment. They may have more typical real estate investments as well. There are also a lot of, you could call them retail buyers, so folks who are not necessarily buying land because they are looking to invest in it or to make a profit but they want land for a very specific personal purpose. Um, and for most people, they're looking for a vacation home, others maybe a spot to go camping. Sometimes people have very specific uses in mind, um, like occasionally we'll have a construction company buy land from us because they need a spot to store materials. Um, we've also had other people buy land from us because they want just a small spot near their favorite ski resort where they can keep all of their recreational equipment and not have to haul it back and forth, um, things like that. So there is there is um, a, a fairly large market of retail buyers. It may not be quite as large as the home buyer market, but it's certainly large enough to for land investors to find success selling their properties in the retail space. But um, if we were talking about land investing and how to make make it uh, not a risky endeavor, the, the biggest key here is, so as I said before, we tend to think that the buy and hold strategy is not a very good strategy when it comes to vacant land, and that, that can be very risky. But if you are able to acquire vacant land parcels at below market value and sell them, usually, and what we found is we, we do have a lot of success selling with owner financing as well. So one, one way that a land investor can provide value in the real estate market is to sell properties, um, hopefully slightly below market already, but also provide owner financing. Because one of the biggest problems in the vacant land space is that it's very hard to find traditional financing. So there are many people who may want to buy property, again, either because they want a recreational parcel or they want land to build their own home or vacation home. 
but they don't have the capital themselves and they're not able to go to a bank and get a regular mortgage to in order to buy property. So if you offer owner financing, you can open up um, a big pool of buyers who are interested in vacant land but haven't yet been able to make it work. The downside of that is that you're taking the risk along with them. Is that right? Yeah, well, the risk is that the buyer will default. But in in the event of a default, you take the property back and you you then put it back on the market. So there are ways to, to limit your risk. Um, and the way that we do it is we actually don't transfer title. So unlike when you buy a home and you get a mortgage and you, you do have a deed that is transferring title to you, um, we do a land contract with our buyer when we offer owner financing. And that contract gives them legal right to use the property within reason. Um, we will usually have some restrictions on how much they can build on the property while they're financing. But it doesn't transfer title. So if they do default, then it's it's a little bit easier to take the property back and remarket it. And the advantage is, of course, that you have an income stream from the financing. Yeah. So the advantage is that you get a stable monthly income with owner financing um, rather than just selling it for cash up front where you may have a few months where you get um, big payouts and then you have to wait a month or so until you sell the next property. It gives you a more even cash flow. You also are able to sell the property for more with owner financing. Uh, We don't charge interest, although some other investors do. Um, But you could charge interest. That's one option. Uh, The other is Again, what we do is we we try to uh, well we charge a higher price with owner financing. So we try to set the owner financing price more or less around where we believe market to be, and then we can provide a discount for cash purchasers, which also helps us sell properties on cash. And we're about 50/50 cash owner financing right now. One of the questions that comes to my mind is if you have a formula to invest in vacant land successfully if you've spent a lot of time learning the ropes from what I recall from your website on your own figuring this out what to buy where to buy it etc why are you sharing it with others I should go back you have a program that you sell where you tell prospective land investors how to do it right yes that's correct so why do you do that is it for the income stream tell us a little bit more about that please um well it was it was actually a side project we did um when COVID hit, we, like many people, have found ourselves with some extra free time um, when we were in quarantine and couldn't go out and, and do our normal after-work activities. And both of us 
we're looking for my partner and I sh- should say we're looking for a way to you know use the business to give back a little bit. So we thought about putting together a course since we had the time. It's not it is not a big source and not a big income stream for us at the moment and we're not necessarily doing it in order to replace the income that we're getting from the actual business. Um, but we, you know, it, it, we wanted to give back a little bit. Um, the other thing is, as I said before, there are thousands and thousands of acres of vacant land. Uh, so the market, as of right now, is, is certainly not oversaturated. Um, but also, the thing about really any real estate investing is that it it's a lot of work. So we imagine that most people who get into it would be looking to do it part-time. Um, and there's, I think when, when you consider how many parcels of vacant land there are out there, um, there's no way that people who are doing, you know, 20 or 30 deals a year as a way to build up some of their, their own wealth, maybe graduate to uh, larger properties or move into more traditional real estate investing in single-family homes. Um, uh, there's no way that you can saturate the market at that scale. And so if it, if it helps a few people, um, that's, that's really what we're looking to do with the course. Let's go back to the basic concept. How do you go about in this very large country with this broad selection of properties, how do you go about figuring out what to do? Where do you start? Do you start where you live? Do you start where, as you were saying earlier, you want to have a place to keep your recreational vehicle or maybe where you would like to build a house in the future? So that, um, that well, I should start out by saying you could make land investing work um, pretty much anywhere in the U.S., we believe. We've worked in a number of different states and a number of different counties, and we have yet to find a place where it just doesn't work. Um, so where to start, I think it depends on what you're trying to accomplish with your land purchase. If you are looking to buy land for personal use, then, of course, it makes sense to start um, in the location that you're interested in, in being in. But if you are looking at it as an investment, there the way that a lot of folks we've seen become successful is to start out looking in places where land is less expensive. Um, so that's primarily in western states, but there are also places like West Virginia, um, some Arkansas, uh, some people work there. But areas where land is less expensive, so you don't have to put up too much capital to buy your first couple properties. And therefore, you can afford to make a few mistakes if you're going to. And you also probably want to start out looking in counties where there are a number of other investors working already. 
which may be a little counterintuitive, but the idea there being that they have already created a marketplace for vacant land. So if you end up overpaying on your first couple of purchases and find that you're having a hard time selling those properties to a retail purchaser, you do always have a backup of being able to wholesale the property to another investor and at least hopefully make back the money that you you spent to purchase the property. What are the risks in addition to, you, you just mentioned that you might be paying too much, maybe you've, you've kind of didn't do your calculations right or maybe the price changes because you've said that land in general is is risky. Tell us a little bit more about what's what's at stake. Um, well, so I would also say that um, I think it's pretty hard using the strategy that we use to to truly overprice a property. Um, generally, so I'll say that in in our experience, we have never lost money on a property. I think there was maybe one that we had to sell at the price that we bought it for, and that was one of the first properties that we purchased. Um, so the the biggest risk in our experience has just been that the property is going to take a while to sell if you've spent a little too much money on your on your purchase of it. Because, again, if you're sticking with some of the lower value parcels of land, and these are properties that you're buying for maybe 500 to $2,000. So, first of all, um, you're trying to limit your risk by making sure that you're not spending too much money on any one parcel. Um, and to um, generally... There's enough data if you are sticking in areas when you're starting out, areas where there are a lot of other investors. There is enough data to to at least um, know how to be far enough below the market value that you'll be able to sell it for a little bit more than what you purchased it at. So the way that we buy properties, we actually don't see much risk. Um, again, the, the biggest potential downside would be that it takes you a long time to sell a particular parcel of land or that you end up maybe only making a few hundred dollars because you made a mistake in your due diligence, you didn't catch something, or you spent a little too much when you purchased the property. If I understood correctly, your recommendation is to start with purchases of between $500 and $1,000. Right. Well, I don't want to give a um, a hard and fast number, but yes, generally we try we still stick with the lower value properties, and we would recommend that if you're starting out and you're learning about vacant land, because there is there is a lot to learn, um, and there is a lot more due diligence that goes into buying vacant land than say into buying a home. So when you're just starting out we highly recommend sticking with the lower value parcels of land. So 500 to 2,000, say, for any one property. And what size property would that be in general? 
in, for example, you said that the most affordable places, uh, I think there were four places you mentioned, the West, West Virginia, and Arkansas. So what size property in general would you be looking at for the, that price range between 500 and 2000 So a lot of, if you're in that price range, you're probably going to have to stick with Western properties. And um, the big states would be Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah. Um, so the Southwest is a good place to start. Um, and there are still many counties in all of those states where you can find um, two to five acres in that price range. Although you won't, you won't find them on the market. You have to look for off-market prices if you're going to pay that price. How much time and effort is it going to require for you to do the due diligence, to do your research, and to identify these properties? So I will say that land investing is a business. Um, there are many people who do it part-time, so it's definitely possible to do it part-time. But it is, it is a fair amount of work. And I think that's true of pretty much any real estate strategy. But if you're if you're going to get into land investing, you need to go in knowing that that it is it is a fair amount of work, um, and that's because well the way we do it is we we do recommend doing a good amount of due diligence before purchasing any property just because um, vacant land if you're going to try and sell it to retail purchaser a lot of those folks do have some aspirations of building on the property at some point. And in order to determine whether that's feasible, um, it requires a, a fair amount of research, um, which is very different from the kind of research you would do if you're buying a home. Um, obviously, because with a home, you already know that a home can go on the property. It exists. There are a number of steps that you don't have to go through when purchasing a property that has an improvement on it already. But having said that, the lower the value of the property you're buying, the less due diligence that is required, um, again, because there's less money you're risking. So the amount of time you're going to spend on any one property really depends on your risk appetite and how much, how much due diligence you want to do up front. Um, but we recommend doing a fair a fair amount of due diligence before putting it out on the market. Is there a ratio that you would say comes to mind, say ten hours for a thousand dollars or a hundred hours for a thousand dollars? Something to give the prospective land investor an idea mm -hmm. of how much of their time is going to be necessary in order to make this work. Mm -hmm. um, well, it's definitely not a hundred hours for a thousand dollars. When we're talking about the the lower value parcels of land, in terms of the time that we take doing our due diligence, it's um, maybe two or three hours, and it it depends. So, when you're first starting out and you're learning about a county and you're learning about vacant land you're going to spend more time per property 
than if you've already bought a number of properties in that area and in that county. So when you get to the point where you understand vacant land due diligence and you've done a number of transactions in a in a particular area, at that point, you know, on some of the desert counties where we are buying land, we may only spend an hour doing all of our due diligence checks because we already know the answers to most questions. You mentioned that many of the properties, or perhaps it was most of the properties that you're looking at, are properties that are off-market. What does that mean exactly? So by that we mean that uh, there are a lot of people who own vacant land and who don't really have any use for it. A lot of people who have inherited land, uh, vacant land, tends not to turn over that often unless it's in um, an area that's going through a lot of development. And that's because, again, especially when you're dealing with lower value parcels of land, it can be very hard to sell vacant land through the traditional method. So that is through a broker on the MLS. Um, and that's that's just because the economics of it don't don't necessarily make sense for brokers. Um, also, many brokers are prop- not all that familiar with vacant land. Um, you know, most of their education has been around homes, uh, so they may not necessarily know how to sell vacant land. And what happens is people may inherit a property. Um, people may have bought a property thinking they're going to build on it and then things changed and now they have no use for it. They try to sell it. It doesn't work through a broker and then they just hold on to it. Um, and they are, they do want to sell. They just can't figure out how. So if you're able to find them and send them a letter, they'll, they'll be um, – very willing to sell their property, often at a discount, just because they're tired of paying taxes. They have no use for it. Um, No one else in their family wants it, um, and they're happy to just let it go. How do you find those properties, and how do you find those owners that are willing to sell for a price that is worthwhile for an investor? So we do direct mail campaigns. Um, the The great thing about real estate in this day and age is that there's a lot of really great data out there around ownership, and uh, that's because counties have to keep pretty extensive records of property owners in order to tax property owners. Um, and there, there are a number of different databases out there that aggregate the data from various county assessors um, and will give you the names and addresses of property owners. You can't get phone numbers this way, um, which is probably a good thing for anyone who's worried about their privacy and and also wants to be a property owner. But you can get their addresses. um, So you can send them a letter and just let them know a little bit about you, who you are, who your company is, what you do, and let them know that you are interested in buying their their vacant land. You're essentially selecting 
an area that is has potential and just blanketing it with offers is is my understanding correctly yes yes so you send um, a campaign our most of our mail campaigns um, average out to about a thousand letters um, so we'll do a thousand letters and then you get a I mean the response rate is is low but it's high enough to make it worthwhile and profitable so if we send say a mail campaign of a thousand letters we may get um, 20 to 30 properties out of that campaign what kind of costs is involved are you producing a direct mail um, what would I call it, a flyer, or is it just a letter? Yeah, so we send a letter, and we also actually send blind offers. So we'll let the property owners know how much we're able to pay for the property. And the reason we we do that is is to set expectations and also save time um, both for the property owners and for us. So if they see what, what we can offer, then they they'll know right away whether it's going to be worth their time to reach out to us or not. Um, but the cost is of a direct mail campaign. It depends on what company you're using, but, um, you know, 40 to 50 cents a letter. And um, we send we send the blind offer, and then we just send a letter introducing ourselves as well. What kind of timeline are we looking at in this scenario? Well, it's um, so the it takes about two weeks for all the letters to go out. Um, it's maybe a week to put the mail campaign together. And I should say my partner is actually in computer science, so he has figured out a way to um, very quickly put together the actual letters and get the data cleaned and scrubbed in a in a timely manner. So about a week to put together the mail campaign, two weeks for the letters to get out, and then responses will come in over the course of two or three months. So when it first hits, we'll get a number of responses, and then we'll get a steady trickle throughout the remaining couple months. And then around the time, because we also put an expiration date on our blind offers, so around the time that the offers are expiring, we'll get another um, kind of flood of inquiries and, and returned letters. And so the blind offer, what does that consist of exactly? So we let the property owner know how much we're willing to pay for the property. And then we, we have a few terms that we outline. Generally, we want to make it clear that there are certain things that we're looking for in a property. Like we want to know, in most cases, that it is theoretically buildable. We also want to make sure that there are no wetlands on the property and that it does have generally legal access. Um, and, of course, we have a, a line that says that they actually have title. They're the owner and they can sell. Um, so we put in some of the key things that we need to verify in order to move forward with the purchase. And we'll have an expiration date as well, and then an area for them to fill out their information so that we can get in contact with them once they send us back the form. 
what is legal access? How can you own land and not have legal access? And so that's a good question. And this is actually, um, we have a, so I should, if you're interested in making land, I'll say we do have a blog post with all of the due diligence items that we tend to look at. I'd say legal access is one of those items that is probably the most confusing for property owners. But basically, especially when you're dealing with rural land, you can have you can have a number of different situations come up that create access issues that you wouldn't generally see in a built-up area. So if you've lived in a city your whole life, you're probably going to be a little bit blindsided unless you've done some research on access. But there's um, so there are properties that can have legal access but no physical access, and there are also properties that can have physical or legal access, sorry, let me start over. You can have properties that have legal access and no physical access and properties that have physical access and no legal access. And physical access is is simple. That's just whether there is a road to the property at all, regardless of condition. Now, legal access means that the road right-of-way or the actual legal right for the public or property owner to use that road has been recorded and confirmed with the county. If you live in a developed area, you don't really think about it because all roads are pretty much guaranteed to be legal roads. They're owned by the city and maintained by the city, but in rural areas, you'll have a lot of roads that are not maintained by any county or city. And some of them, it may not even be clear what the legal status is of those roads. Um, but what you want to look for to ensure whether a road actually gives you legal right to use it to access a property is a plat with the county. So in many cases, rural parcels are created through a subdivision project. At one point, someone, they were large chunks of land, probably hundreds of acres, and then at some point someone, whether a developer or a property owner, divides them up into a bunch of smaller parcels. And these days, if you're going to do that, you have to plat out the roads and record a plat map with the county. And that plat map shows where all the roads are supposed to go, even if they're never developed. And so even if those roads aren't developed, you can, if you're driving down where that road is supposed to go, you still have a legal right as a member of the public to drive through the area and get to the property. What happened in the past, though, was that there didn't used to be any requirements to create roads when you subdivided a property. So you will have parcels that have no legal right-of-way to them. Someone subdivided them out of a larger property and never bothered to record a plat map or an easement, which I can go into what an easement is in a little bit, but they never bothered to record anything that gives anyone a legal right to access the property. And um, 
if you're looking at rural land in subdivisions that were created a long time ago, that's something you want to you want to make sure that you check for. And generally, you can find legal access again either by looking for a plat map of the subdivision, and that'll be recorded with the county clerk. And the plat map, if it shows roads, generally you're okay. You can also look for an easement, which is not a map, but it's either language in a property deed or it's a separate document that outlines where the easement is supposed to go and that also outlines the legal right to use a portion of a property as an access way either for the general public or for a specific property owner. And all of this information is available online? All of the counties across the country now have that online? Well, um, not necessarily. So some counties are very good about having online available public records. Others aren't. Now, in almost every county, or at least almost every county that we've worked in, you can call up the county clerk and ask for a document if they don't have online records. Um, because all of this, any recorded document is a public document, so you are supposed to have the right to, to find it and read it. Having said that, though, if you're talking about a very old document, um, some counties will say that you need to go in and find it yourself because they don't have um, they don't have an online record of it yet or they haven't scanned it. In those cases though, um, title companies, that's where title companies come in and they can be very helpful. Sometimes they may help you find just a particular deed. Um, if they've done a lot of business in that area, they may have already gone to the county clerk and copied a lot of these documents. Other times, um, if you are buying a higher value property, it's worth it just to close through a title company and get a title search done because when you get a title search done, that report will show you all the information about the property and it will also let you know whether there are access easements in place already. Is it a single title company that you would work with or is it per state or per county? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so title companies generally, well, generally you want to work with the title company. If you are going to close through a title company, you want to work with a title company that is in the county where the property is located. There are, you know, large um, U.S.-wide title companies like First American Title, but you end up working with their branch office in the county where the property is located. What about issues like those encumbrances that you were talking about, easements or titles that are cloudy where there are disputes or you're not really sure who owns what, or even things like uh, water access, utility access, mm -hmm. fires, earthquakes, flooding? How do you decide where your comfort level is because everything you are looking at is going to have some degree of risk, right? Right, yes. So um, 
We do. So we do say that you should do um, thorough due diligence before purchasing any property. But having said that, of course, if you look hard enough, you can always find a reason not to buy a property. So at some point, you do need to um, decide where your risk thresholds are. And um, and that kind of goes back to what I was saying before. The more money you're going to spend on a property, the more thorough you're due you are going to want your due diligence to be. So if you're buying a property for $500, um, maybe you just want to check for wetlands, legal access, and ownership, um, and then maybe do a very, very brief check on the other things and um, just accept that on the off chance that you miss something, you know, you, you only have $500 that you're risking. Whereas if you're going to spend $100,000 on a property, you definitely want to go through every single due diligence item and make sure that it, it checks the, the main boxes. So I, it, and every land investor is going to have a different risk threshold. So I think a lot of it just comes down to, I suppose what I would recommend at the end of the day is um, start out First, understand all of the potential due diligence checks that you should do, theoretically, on every property. Um, Understand how to do all of them. Um, Do all of them, regardless of the price of the property. And then as you get more experience in vacant land investing and you start to, um, and you've done a number of deals, you'll start to figure out where your own individual risk threshold is and um, what the trade-off is between time and risk and where you're going to put in more due diligence and where you won't. You talked at the beginning about the riskiest aspect of the investment being the length that you held the property. Is there a rule of thumb that you follow that says, how long to keep the property? Is it size-wise? Is it location? Is it cost? Well, so we actually, we have we have never had a problem selling a property. Um, I think the longest it took us to sell a property was maybe six or seven months. So we've never actually come, um, gotten to a point where we have to think about uh, do we do we still want to keep trying to sell this? It's been a long time, or do we just want to get rid of it and wholesale it at at the price we bought it for to another investor? Um, so I I actually think that that so the greatest risk is that the property is going to sit there, but it's when I say it's going to sit there and maybe talking about six months to maybe a year. Um, not, I've never seen a situation where, where we just can't sell a property. Um, but again, if you get to a point where you, you really want to get rid of the property or you need the money back, that's why we recommend starting out in counties where there are a lot of other investors working because you can always have as a fallback position the, the ability to, to try and sell the property um, at the at a low price to another investor. And all of these purchases 
are they sight unseen? Do you ever actually go and see a property? So we typically don't go ourselves, but when we're buying some of the more expensive properties, so certainly if we're going to spend more than $5,000 on a property, we will send a photographer or a drone pilot out to the property, and they'll give us you know, photos or a drone video of the area and of the property. And we'll also ask for a report on the road conditions. Um, another thing that you have to look out for when buying property out west is um, gates on roads, which kind of ties into the legal access question. But that's why when we send a photographer out, we'll ask them to give us a brief overview of the condition of the roads and if there were any gates. And if there is a gate, we would ask for the GPS coordinates of where that gate was to see if there's another way around it. So we'll do that for properties that are on the more expensive end of our range. We'll also have someone go out if we're buying a number of properties in one particular subdivision. So we do that a lot as well. Um, if we, We'll send out a mail campaign to a particular area, so not, so not necessarily the county as a whole, but just a particular subdivision. And then once we get a number of purchase agreements back from that subdivision, we'll have a drone pilot go out to take videos of various spots in the subdivision and let us know what the road condition is and whether there are any gates in the area. What kinds of expenses then, in addition to the purchase price, now we're talking about the potential cost of visiting the property or so far not, not actually visiting, but the photography or drone, uh, what kind of costs are, would that be? or percentage of costs, uh, I'm sorry, costs versus the property price? So uh, if you, a photographer, you can, we can hire for, you know, $70 to $100. So it's a, it's a very small cost compared to what we would sell the property for. And with the lower value parcels where that may be, um, a slightly higher percentage of the final sales price. Um, generally, that's when we'll be sending someone out to take photos or a video of a whole subdivision. So the cost of that service will be borne by a number of different parcels and not uh, just one. So you would buy several parcels in a subdivision and spread that cost across them? Yes, yeah. So that's that's another way that we are able to to make a land investing for lower value parcels cost effective is um, try to batch purchases. Um, so we'll buy a number of properties in one subdivision around the same time, and that way any costs associated with mailing and due diligence, things like that, can be spread out across a number of properties. So far, there's the cost of the mailer, the cost of the property itself, the cost of the photographer if one is necessary, and then potentially taxes, not to mention your time. How do you decide 
Is there a formula that you use? What what is the expectation? How much money do you invest on pro, on a parcel before you decide that it's too much, regardless of the actual price? So maybe it's very affordable, but it's only five hundred dollars. But all of these expenses adding up are the same as the price. Or I, I don't know what the formula is. Um, well, I, I mean, I should say one of the great things about land investing is that it it doesn't really require that much money um, in order to do the due diligence. It can it it can take a lot of time. I mean, there's a trade-off. So um, if you wanted someone else to do all the due diligence for you, yes, that'll come with a cost. But if you're doing your own due diligence, there's very little cost to to going through all of the items that we go through when we look at a property. Um, another great thing about vacant land is property taxes tend to be very, very low. So you don't, we don't really, we don't usually look at taxes um, as a potential um, profit killer because in many of these parcels, taxes are under $100 a year. So if we do end up paying taxes once, it's not it's not a big cost outlay. There are some exceptions. I mean, there are some counties where property taxes will be higher. But generally, I mean, if property taxes are under $100 a year, then we don't really worry about it. Um, now, one thing we will look at is whether there is a lot of back taxes due. Um, and one thing that you run across when you are looking at off-market properties will be properties where someone maybe hasn't paid taxes for five, seven, even ten years. And in those instances, um, yeah, uh, there, there are times when once the back taxes are equal to what we're going to pay for the property, then, then we're not going to go any further with our due diligence. Once you've gone through this process and you've found one or 10 or 20 properties, what kind of returns can you expect? In other words, how much money making potential are we looking at? So we, on the low end, we, we sell the proper property for twice as much as we paid for it. But generally, that's at the low end. Um, but most properties are between three and five times what we paid for for the lot, and with owner financing, it can be even higher than that. So the the returns are really good on vacant land um, in terms of actual dollar amounts. Um, if you're dealing with lower value land, um, you know it's it's a couple thousand to 10, 20,000 per property, but we go for volume. So I think, you know, with land investing, there there seem to be two strategies. One, you go for larger parcels of land where you and you keep those same return metrics. So you're looking at big paydays for each parcel, but you sell very few properties. Um, we don't do that because in, in our opinion, that's a riskier strategy. We like to stick with the lower value parcels of land because we find those two to be very low risk. 
um, and that's how we mit mitigate the risk associated with vacant land or that everyone thinks of when they think of vacant land. So we stick with lower value properties, um, but we do high volume and also we do owner financing. So what happens with owner financing is um, even though you're not getting a chunk of money right when you sell the property, you build up a loan portfolio over time and eventually that loan portfolio can be um, you know, 20, 50, 100,000 a month coming in, depending on the volume that you're doing and how long you've been doing it for. Now, I'm assuming that that's a whole other conversation that we're not going to have time for today in the sense of you're going to have to do some sort of vetting before you decide whether to offer the owner financing. Yeah, so, well, we actually don't, we don't do a credit check. We don't do much, we don't do much vetting ourselves. Um, and that's because, again, we don't, we don't transfer title to the purchaser when, when we're doing owner financing. So the risk to us is pretty low. If someone defaults, um, it's, it's just a matter of doing some paperwork on our end. But different people, again, have different risk um, risk tolerances. Um, but I would say if you go with the strategy that we use where you have a land contract and you don't transfer title to the buyer until they have paid off the full loan amount, uh, the advantage you get when you don't um, go through a lot of vetting of buyers is that you widen the pool um, and it's much easier to sell the properties. Our default rates, even though we don't do vetting, our default rates are actually not that high. Um, they've, with COVID, they've gone up, but, um, and it's probably higher than the, it is higher than the default rate on traditional mortgage, but still under 10%. So for us, the advantage of having a wide pool of buyers is much greater than the risk of default. And also, it's um, it helps the land market in that you, you can help people who would otherwise not be able to become property owners at all, whether that's because um, they have poor credit um, or very, or because they they don't yet have much in the way of savings, uh, you you are letting those people access property ownership in in some way. Um, so that's kind of a roundabout way of saying that um, we the way that we do it, we don't see owner financing to be very risky, and uh, for that reason, we don't we don't. Um, have a very in-depth vetting process. How many purchases or how much time, I'm not sure what the best way is or if there is a best way, maybe it depends on the person, but how much investment in time and your time would you say is necessary for someone who's interested in becoming a vacant land investor before they start seeing mm -hmm. some of these returns that you were describing? Mm -hmm. Well, again, I, I think 
As with any real estate investment strategy, you do need to have patience. We we were working for about a year before we really felt like we had things figured out and we were consistently seeing the returns that we were we were looking to see. So based on that, I'd say give it at least a year. I mean, hopefully with, with help, you can get there faster, but, um, but I'd say yes, you, you should be willing to, to wait about a year in order to figure things out. Also, if you're doing it part-time, um, you may need a little bit longer as well, just because part of it is doing deals. So the more deals you do, the quicker you will learn. Um, so there's a trade-off between the amount of time you want to put in each week and the amount, amount of time um, it'll take for you to get to a point that you're profitable or reaching the, the metrics that uh, I mentioned before. What amount of investment, financial investment, would you say is involved? And that's, that's going to vary based on what your goals are. We tend to say that you should have at a minimum ten thousand to get started, and uh, then but you should also expect that you'll be putting in more as you do more deals. Um, so, if you're just looking to do it part time, then you know you can start out with ten thousand, um, put more in as you're able to, and you'll do a couple deals with that. But um, if you're looking to make it a business the way that we did, it's, it is going to be um, a more substantial investment than, than that 10000 To those listeners who are sitting there thinking, well, why don't I just buy the property from somebody who's already done all of the research and the due diligence, and is there still a profit there? Well, so that's why... Um, so the the way it, the way that we're able to make it profitable is because we buy properties below market, um, somewhat I mean significantly below market, and we're able to do that because we are willing to take on the risk and do all of our own due diligence. If you are buying a property from someone who has already done all of that the likelihood that you can buy it below market is probably very small. And if you are not buying vacant land below market, it is more likely than not not going to be a great investment. I mean, there are plenty of reasons why you would want to buy vacant land at market. So if you're buying it for personal uses, not investment purposes, then it probably makes far more sense to buy property at market from someone who has already vetted it. But if you are looking to make money off of vacant land, you're looking to invest in it and to have a significant profit off of it. Um, It's going to be very hard to do that if you're buying it from someone who has already vetted it because they'll be factoring that work into the price. How do you go about selling the land? We've spent most of our time here talking about how to go about selecting and doing your due 
your due diligence. But once you have it, your goal is to turn around and make a profit from that. So how do you go about selling that land? So there are a number of land-specific listing sites, which we're on. Um, we also do YouTube videos on all of our properties, which we think is a, is a great way to get the properties out there into the marketplace. And, um, but the, the biggest thing, as I said before, is um, offering owner financing. I think that's more so than where you are actually listing the properties. I think that's the biggest factor in being able to sell the properties. So um, offering owner financing, but also doing the extensive due diligence and then having a video or a listing page that covers those due diligence checks. Um, those are really the keys to selling property rather than finding um, you know, the magic place where you can list the properties. Erica, thank you for joining us from Wharton, New Jersey. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. And to our audience, you have been listening to Erica Benson, who is co-owner of Gokchi Capital LLC, who discussed how to invest in vacant land in 2021. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.